All right, well, last week we didn't meet. I wasn't here, and then y'all canceled church, <laughs> even though I had prepared ahead of time. I, exactly. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm that important. That's, that's the takeaway. Um, yeah, I did. I have it all. I had it set to go. Uh, what's that? Yeah, you can. So we're not going to do that tonight. It wasn't the, the most important thing. I do still have those handouts. Um, if you wanted to get one, I didn't leave these on the table, but I guess I could. So this is from, that's for this week. This is from last week. So I'll just mention a couple things on this and we'll, we'll kind of move on. Who wants to look at last week's? So this is just in 2 Corinthians because there's some passages there that apply. And we also talked about, uh, talked about Jesus' body. Um, this stuff is online. If you go like on our Facebook page, you can get access to it if you want to see my talk there. Um, so if you want to read through that passage and kind of see what he's talking about, this little chart here I think is pretty helpful to see what the different metaphors that Paul is using, right? That this body is like an earthly tent, um, but when the resurrection will be like this beautiful building, but we don't want to be homeless, right? And that's that, right? Paul is, doesn't change his mind or his perspective. He doesn't go to this idea that we want to leave the body behind and just be this immaterial soul. That's, that's Greek philosophy, not... Uh, biblical thought and so some people but some people if you just read these chapters that's kind of how it sounds so if you know where paul is coming from you can tell that's that's not what he means uh, and then i also talk some about jesus body right you want to know what resurrection is like we have one example um and we may come back to that later because we'll have some time at the end of the class to kind of discuss a little bit but you kind of see in a lot of those gospel stories that he's both in some ways ghostly or spirit-like but then other ways he's he's there he's tangible people can touch him right like thomas doing nail marks in his hands and yet he appears behind locked doors uh i think the implication is that because he's resurrected that's that's our best example our only example of what a resurrection body is like right um so i don't know that it's but how he is seems to be consistent with what paul talks about right of it's like this but it's not like this right and that's the big stress uh, point that i think paul's making is it's not just like this, right? And these fragile bodies that, you know, get hurt. Um, but it's not totally different, right? That God's not abandoning and leaving behind what God has already made. All right, so as we talked about resurrection the past few weeks, now we want to start thinking about further implications of that, right? If God is doing this for us, what else is God doing? All right, some of the things that we saw in this was that God, right? Genesis 1, God created the world, material world, and called it good. And so that means, for in our, in our case, bodies are fundamentally good things. Uh, they're not bad. They're not something to be escaped, even though sin and death um, is a problem that affects them. At the beginning, they're good, right? And so that's where we should start from. And we also see, as we think about resurrection, that God, what God does is God fixes what is broken uh, or what is cursed, Right? So in Paul's language, the perishable, our current state, puts on the imperishable. Or death is defeated. Right? God doesn't just kind of give up and say, well, death won this stuff, so I'll, I'll take what I can. No, God is going to fix what's messed up. And so the body, Paul says, can, and everywhere is consistent in this, the body is transformed and renewed. It's not abandoned, uh, but God takes what, is, what God made, sin breaks, God restores it, fixes it how it should be. All right, that's, that's the big thing to know about why resurrection matters. 
But then you get some kind of questions that go along with that. Um, so if we had this quote-unquote spiritual body, right, that's how Paul describes it, which it's transformed but still tangible, right? It's still a body, uh, but one filled with the, completely filled with God's Spirit, motivated by the Spirit. How could this spiritual body exist in the sort of immaterial heaven that we often picture? Right? That doesn't seem to, to match. And then also, like, kind of the timeline, right? What's the timeline of, of all this? Do we wait to go to heaven at the resurrection? And that's what the resurrection is, is when we go to heaven. Or do we go to heaven when we die? And then, well, okay, so what is the resurrection, right? If, if you already go to heaven when you die, what's happening? What's different uh, at Jesus' second coming, right? It seems like that's supposed to be a big deal. And we will talk some more later in a couple sessions about that in between time, but there are some questions there. Another question is, does God only care about humans, right? Now, you can find plenty of passages that talk about our special place in creation, but that's different from saying our human beings, our human souls even, are the only thing that God cares about in all of creation, and everything else is just kind of uh, background dressing, right? Is that, is that the real way we should look at what, how God sees us and sees everything? Yeah, final judgment and resurrection seem to be the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's kind of that question of, okay, until that point, what's happening, right? Um, I'm just pointing out that some people think, or sometimes we think, well, when you die, you go to heaven, but then Jesus is going to come back, and then we'll go to heaven again, right? I think that's kind of the tension that I'm trying to point out. Yeah, yeah, and, and this, these are things we're going to get into, right? I'm just trying to point out these are some questions that probably naturally come as we're thinking about this. Right, we start with resurrection and see where it leads us. Um, so, right, and I've got the quote here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. In the end, God will, what? How would you fill in that blank relating to the heavens and the earth? In the beginning, God created them. In the end, God will do what with them? What are some ways that that question gets answered? That blank gets filled in. Destroy the earth. Okay, yeah, God will destroy the earth. That's a, a common interpretation of things. Restore it too. Okay, restore it. And, yeah, right. So that new heaven and new earth. Um, so how, what that looks like. Um, but I think that should be where we focus, right? That in in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the end, God recreates them. Yeah. Right. That right. That's consistent. Uh, I, th- I think so. That's kind of basically going to be the case that I'm trying to make over the next two or three weeks, right? No, you're good, right? That's, uh, uh, um, we'll just say it now, and then we'll kind of start looking at these passages. Uh, come on in. Um, the, the end is about God restoring and renewing all creation, heaven and earth. That's not just about us. What God will do for us in the resurrection is what God will do for all creation, Right? That we don't get some special status, but that God, we can look at resurrection, and if we understand that, that shows us how God works and where the end is going. Um, right? if, if you're here the very first week, we watched this video from the Bible Project, and one of the things they said was that the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. Right? And as we pointed out, that's not usually how we've always thought about the story, but, but I think that's a good Actually, you can make a good case. That is what the story of the Bible is about, the union of heaven and earth. And so there are different phrases that are used for this, and sometimes it's not a particular phrase, but you can 
if you have this picture in mind, you start seeing it show up in lots of different places. So uh, it's called the new heavens and the new earth, right? You have the references there in Isaiah and Second Peter and Revelation. We will look at all those passages eventually. Or the, the title that I've put on, on the top of the handout is the restoration of all things. That's a phrase that shows up in Acts chapter 3, where Paul, or Peter is preaching about uh, what God is doing through Christ. Right? And, and so we'll see some other ideas, but they all kind of center around that idea of, of God fixing everything, God bringing everything back together and not just um, taking us out of it. Right? We're, we're thinking about the nature of heaven and earth and what it says about God. Right? To me, why all of this matters, why, and kind of the ongoing question with everything is, what is this saying about God? What are we saying God is like? What are we saying God does? Because uh, that's if you, if, you have a, if you have different pictures of God, it's going to shape the way that you are following that God. Right? And so we want to try and be as uh, thoughtful and, and you know, understanding everything in, in Scripture as well as we can. Um, and I, I, so another thing that I pointed out in our first session was that in the Bible, you never see the phrase heaven and hell together. Right? You see both of those words, but it's never grouped together as a phrase, even though that's so often how we think of afterlife or, or creation, right? It's the story of heaven and hell. Well, the Bible never uses that phrase. Instead, it talks about heaven and earth all the time. Uh, and so we should see that's the, the focus of what creation is. All right, so we're thinking about heaven. Uh, just show me, where is heaven? If you're going to point. Where is heaven? <laughs> Up, right? I mean, that's, that's the easy answer. Now, picture the earth, unless, unless you're a flat earther. Uh, the earth is, that's another discussion we'll get into. We can correct. Uh, but, right, it's a globe. So up for us in Kansas would kind of be out this way. But if you're in Australia, you'd be pointing down that way. Well, well which way is it, right? Yeah, right? Where is it? And I was like, well, you just go up, right? And, and you know, uh, now we know a lot with astronomy, and we haven't found it yet, right? We can see for billions of, of miles and light years and still haven't found heaven. Um, and so I think we need to understand that this idea of heaven above is, is metaphorical, right? And even I think you can make the case that people, in, at least in the time of the New Testament, could understand that that's, it's not literally just right above us. Maybe they thought that at first, but that's, you know, that's the more simple way you'd think about it, right? So we can understand it as, as metaphorical. And in fact, the word in Scripture... For one thing, it's usually plural, right? And uh, some translations will carry this through. Most don't, but it's usually the heavens, right? Um, I think King James did that pretty consistently, which is more accurate. And when, it, when the Bible uses the word heavens, that can refer to a lot of things, right? It can just be talking about the sky, right? The birds that are flying in the heavens, right? They just mean the sky or space, kind of that uh, level above the sky. Or it can be where God is, Right? Um, and then there's even places, I think even in, I think it's in Ephesians, there's in the New Testament where Paul, or in Second Corinthians also, he talks about like tears, the, the third heaven, right? This, so at some points they had this sort of like there's different levels to it. That's all to say, right? Heaven, that word can mean a lot of different things, right? Um, so it can just be the sky, but it's also where God is. And for, for me, I think the most helpful way to think about it is the idea that heaven's like another dimension, right? I know this sounds a little sci-fi, so maybe that, maybe that helps, maybe that doesn't help. Uh, but the idea that, like, it's another side of reality, right, kind of behind ours. Um, 
And so sometimes that means, that means heaven's not far off. It's actually right here, right? It's even closer, which I think is a better way to think about God. If heaven is God's space, God is not far off in outer space. God is closer than our own breath. It's just we don't see it because it's this other side. And so sometimes heaven breaks through. That's a, a way I, that probably they would have thought about miracles in, in uh, biblical times, right? That it's this heaven is, is breaking through and, and Jesus is kind of a, a per, that, that happening in, in a human being, heaven's breaking through. Or the, the, ta- the temple is that place where heaven and earth meet, right? We talked about that in the beginning as well. Right? In that ancient mindset, that's how they saw that, yeah, this, the temple's on earth, but you're in the presence of heaven there, right? And, and again, Jesus is like a walking temple, and we now are the temple of God. So it's heaven and earth are meeting there. So along with this also, as we think about the nature of heaven and earth and, and nature of God, right, we really want to think about two different concepts of, of God, what God is like and what God is doing. Because one, and I often think this is the more common view that people have, one is that God gives up on a broken creation by destroying it, but he takes the souls of certain people to be with him. Or a second concept is that God does not give up on his broken creation, instead restores it, including the people on it, right? So those are two, very, I would say, fairly different ideas of God, and there's different implications to each of those, right? Do we have a God who gives up on things when they're not working and will just kind of cut his losses? Or do we have a God who is faithful to what God has made and God is going to do everything possible to redeem all of it, or as much as it's possible to be redeemed. Um, I think the second one sounds more godly, in my, in my view. And so I think that's how we should think about how God works. Because that also shapes how we live and how we act, right? Are we going to be people who give up on things and it seems like there's just not working anymore? Or are we going to continue to be faithful and work towards redemption and restoration? Right? To me, that is, again, more godly in what we see in, in the gospel. All right, any questions about, about all that? All right, so now we'll start looking at some passages to kind of make this, this case uh, of this idea of the union of heaven and earth. So we're going to go to the end, to Revelation chapter 21. The end of the last book of the Bible, which is Revelation, not Revelations. Just always going to point that out. <laughs> it's one of my little pet peeves. Uh, Revelation chapter 21. I'll give you a second to get there. I'll read, I'll read verses, verses 1 through 5. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. All right. So here we have uh, uniting the two halves of creation, heaven and earth, uh, coming together. And so, you know, we've already thought some about direction with heaven and where it might be. Uh, so we want to keep thinking about that, right? So in this, this scene here, this picture, 
who is going in what direction, right? Who goes where and who's, who's doing the movement? Yeah, right? God is coming this way. Uh, the home of God is among mortals. Not the home of mortals is, among, is with God. Right? Again, that's usually the way that we think about the, the end, the story is. That's when we get to go and be where God is. Um, if you just read it in a very straightforward way, it's saying that's when God comes here. Um, God is making the move. And I think that's, that's important, right? I mean, it seems like a big distinction. Well, we're together, so why does it matter? Right? It's about God taking the initiative. And it's consistent, right? That's what the incarnation is. Uh, as John 1 says, uh, the Word became flesh and made a home among us. Right? The incarnation of Christ is not some one-time thing, but that is an example of the way that God always acts. God is always mo- moving towards us. God is taking the initiative. God relentlessly pursues us uh, when sometimes we'd rather he didn't. Right? Um, but this is what God does, and so it's the same, the same story here. God comes to be with us in some sense, um, which obviously when God shows up, things are going to be different too, right? It's, it's, a, it's not that the earth is going to be the same and now God's just kind of hanging around. No, it's, it's all new, right? And so that's what it says in verse 5. See, God says, I am making all things new. All right, so what does the word new mean? Right? How do we use the word new in English? What are some different things that new can mean? Any examples? If I say I got a new car, what could that mean? <laughs> okay, yeah, I got rid of my old car and got a new one, all right? Fresh, shiny. Yeah, right? Uh, especially if you get like an actual brand new car, right? A, a 2020. By children. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the other one was messy and, and beat up, so I just tr- junked that thing, maybe got 50 bucks for it, and now I've got a new car, all right? So that, that might be what you do. Or, right, maybe you get a car that's it's new to me, right? Like it, it was, it's not brand new, but it's, an, you know, I, we usually buy used cars, and so it's, it's new, but not in the same way. Um, you could also restore a car, right? Take a car that's really old and do a lot of work on it, and then, in a sense, it's new, um, but it's still the same old car. Um, what else? Where do, you, where do we talk about something being new? What do we mean by that? It works better. Okay, yeah, right? Usually we want something new because we think it'll be more effective, right? You upgrade your phone because it's going to run faster than that the ancient two-year-old one that you had before, right? Uh, okay, so like brand new, right? Like it's, it's a totally original and fresh sort of thing, right? It's, it's totally different. Um, if it's new, then it's not what you had before. Um, so that's often the case, I think, where, how we use it. But we use it in other ways, too. Right? When there's a new moon, that doesn't mean that like, the moon blew up or disappeared when it got dark. It's, it's the same moon. It's not actually a brand new one. But it's, you know, it's uh, starting that cycle again. Right? So even in English, new, uh, my point is new can cover a lot of different ground in right, the way we use it. So uh, it's helpful to know that in Greek, uh, there are actually two different words that can mean new or be translated as new. So these are your Bible nerd words for the week. Uh, the first word is uh, neos, right, um, or neos. Um, and you can probably see, right, um, I'm trying to think of examples of how we use that, that phrase, but, um, right, you may see that show up occasionally. Greek shows up in language all the time. 
I like to point out. And so neos, neos means totally new, right? Something fresh, something original. Uh, that's, I think, more often how we use the word new would be in this, this sense. But they have a second word, uh, which is kainos, and that's the idea of taking something old and making it new, right? It's more about renewal, right? And very often that's the, the more common word. And that's the word that's used here in Revelation, right? So uh, another way you could translate it is God saying, see, I am renewing all things, right? I am making all things renewed, which has a different sense, right? That it's not God, God is not doing something totally fresh and different, but God is taking what was already there and giving it uh, a, a sense of newness. Yeah, now this, this will come up, I think it's next week, we'll look at Second Peter, and there's some issues even with the, the translations there. Um, but it, right, if it's going to be renewed, you've got to do some stuff to it, right? Like if you're restoring a car, there's, there's work to be done, right? And so that's, it's, again, it's not the idea that it's just going to be like it is now, uh, but it's not that God is trashing it and doing something different. Yeah, right? So there are aspects of the old that, that aren't going to be around, right? And he says death will be no more, weeping, crying. Those are the sort of things that won't be in it when it's, when it's renewed. Right? But you notice he's saying it's like it'll be a renewed heaven and earth. And, and God doesn't say, and look, I am making all new things. He says, I am making all things new. Right? That's, that's, again, subtle difference, but it makes uh, quite an impact. Uh, to me, renewal is less like if something's broken, um, it's not to trash it and get, replace it with something else. It's to fix what's broken. Right? And I think that's the image we should have here. And so this gets into an idea that we actually see a lot in Scripture. So I want us to think about what words, biblical words, can you think of that start with the prefix re? Right? Like, so we said renew. What else? Refresh. Yeah, it talks about times of refreshing. I was thinking redeemed. Right? Redeemed. Restore. Right? I think we've talked about that. Restore. Um, we have the ministry of reconciliation. All right, so, I just, and there's probably others. I can think of, let me see if I had any others. Well, resurrection, right? Obvious one we should have thought of. Uh, regeneration, right? Uh, so this, this prefix in English means again, right? Like, well, even repeat, right? And there, it, all these words, most of these in, in Greek start with a similar uh, prefix that means the same thing, right? Again, right? So all the things that God does, God redeems us, God restores us, God reconciles us. It's, they're all pointing to this idea of God taking what's broken and messed up and bringing it back to where it needs to be, right? Redemption is the idea of buying something back that belongs to you and was stolen. Um, reconciliation is making a relationship right that's gone wrong. Um, we already talked about restoration, right? So this is the consistent biblical idea of, of how God works. It's what God does uh, in the Old Testament. It's what God does through Christ, and it's what God will do in the end. And so that has implications for how we understand God, right? Again, God is a God who doesn't give up on what's broken, but God works to redeem it, restore it, reconcile it. Um, it has implications for our mission, right? That we, as I mentioned, we have this ministry of reconciliation. We are in the business of doing what God is doing in the end and now, of making things where they should be, putting things right in whatever the way that looks like. 
All right. Uh, and then the other thing that uh, you could go further in Revelation 21, and it's all emphasizing God's presence with us, right? Again, this thing about the direction of the movement, God is coming to us. Uh, so in verse 16, it's talking about the city. The new Jerusalem is like a perfect cube, which is probably a reference to the Holy of Holies, right? In the temple, that was the space where God was, and it was a perfect cube. Uh, so that's probably the idea there. And then also it even says in verses 22 and 23 that there's no temple in the city, right? Because God himself is the temple, right? The temple is a place where heaven and earth meet. Well, you don't need that anymore if all of heaven and earth have met here, right? So again, the, the focus in Revelation 21 is, is God's presence with us. Again, same as the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, right? It's always consistent. This is where the story's always going. Yeah, right. And so he's using all these images and metaphors to communicate that. And that's what it's about. All right, any other questions about that, about Revelation 21? Well, there's always more questions about Revelation. <laughs> we don't have time for that right now. We can study that book another day. Well, let's uh, look at one other passage. We won't spend a lot of time in here. But go to Isaiah chapter 65. Uh, this is where we first get this language of a new heaven and a new earth, right? One of the things about Revelation is that almost every phrase and image and picture in it is coming from the, New Te- the Old Testament somewhere. He just never really quotes it, right? So he's all these allusions to Scripture without directly quoting it. But the more you know the Old Testament and all these visions, the more in Revelation you're like, oh, he's just he's picking that up and reinterpreting it or, or fulfill, seeing it fulfilled in a different way. So it's not surprising that as we read this, we'll see, oh, that sounds like what happens in Revelation, too. Because I'm sure John was familiar with it, with Isaiah. So, Isaiah chapter 65. I'm going to start in verse 17. Uh, For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth. One who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, nor shall they plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food, shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. All right, so this is this prophetic hope, right? And again, like I said, it's foundational uh, to so many New Testament writers when they talk about this idea. In Isaiah's day, they're responding to the challenge of the exile, right? They had been kicked out of Jerusalem for a time, and maybe at this point some of them had come back, but it wasn't, right? It wasn't like it was supposed to be. It wasn't what they hoped. And so this is giving that vision of hope. Now, something I want to point out, anytime that we're reading the prophets, is that the prophets are usually speaking in a poetic way, right? And you even see that like in the way that it's set in your Bibles, right? This is poetic language. 
um, which means they're not being literalists. Uh, I know a lot of people tend to want to read everything through that lens, that everything is, is literally how it's going to be. And I think that, that misses the point of how this language works um, in Revelation and most of the prophets. Again, saying it's poetic doesn't mean it's not true. It just means we understand how it's working in a different way. Um, we're just a very literal sort of people, and we have to understand that they may have looked at it differently. And so we see, like, if, as, you're, as, you're, as I was reading all that, it's very much focused on an earthly Jerusalem, right? It's, it's just like living in this city and living a pretty earthly kind of life, right? So for the prophets, it's so often focused on that promised land, right? That one city or that one piece of land in the Mediterranean. And so we want to, I think, a way to think about it is that, you know, Isaiah, Isaiah to use Paul's language, saw through a glass darkly, right? It's not that he saw the wrong thing, but that what he was seeing wasn't fully revealed yet, right? It's more like he's trying to describe a dream. Have you ever had to describe a dream after you woke up? Um, Then he is like dictating the specific details of every single thing that would happen, right? We know there's clearer revelation that comes later um, through Christ, right? Jesus is the one who shows us what the Father is like more than anyone else. And so... The New Testament is expanding this, these sort of visions and seeing that it's actually not just about this one city or this one piece of this one country. It's all creation, right? And so that's why in, in Revelation, it's a new Jerusalem, right? It's not, and again, you read Revelation, it's not just a little city. It's like hundreds of miles wide, right, this city, right? Again, it, that's also metaphorical. The point being that the way I think about it is like Isaiah was looking at the same thing John was looking at, but he just didn't see it as clearly yet. Right? And that's not to say we should ignore Isaiah uh, or, or dismiss it, but to see that they, things became clear as we get further into the story. And so right, it, it talks about you know, people that you'll live to 100, and if you die at 100, you'll seem like that was such a shame. right? So for them, it was about long life, but actually we now understand it's about eternal life. Right? You can see the trajectory of where it's going. Um, so I, I say all that so we don't get hung up on, well, this needs to literally, literally happen just like this, or else God's not keeping his promise. No, it's, God's keeping the promise in an even better way than, than what Isaiah saw. All right, any questions about that? That's, I could go on a longer tangent about understanding the Bible and how all that works and how we read the prophets particularly. Um, again, what's the focus? The focus is on God fixing things and that there is more life and more hope than, than what they're experiencing in that moment, right? And that's consistent, um, this idea of God being with them. And also you end with this vision of, of universal peace, the wolf and the lamb lying together, right? Uh, that's, again, when we get to the resurrection, I don't know if we're going to see that happening literally like that. Maybe we will, or maybe that's just uh, helping us to picture, right? You would never think of a lamb and a, and a wolf uh, being best friends, but you know, I think that's saying something about how we're going to get along with uh, the people that we've so often not agreed with. In, so in the Whatever Isaiah was seeing, it is, I think it is consistent with what John saw later, and it's about God restoring things, the new heavens and the new earth, and there's peace, there's uh, life, uh, and joy. So that's what it's about. I want to end by just quickly thinking about the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, because the prayer is not, Our Father in heaven, 
take us where you're at in heaven. No, it's your kingdom come from heaven to earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Right? This prayer that Jesus taught us is about God's presence, God's kingdom, God's way of being in the world fill this space more. Right? It's that same consistent direction, the hope uh, that we find throughout all Scripture doesn't change to where someday it'll be like, well, but well, we want to get away from this. No, it's on earth as it is in heaven. Right? God's kingdom come. And so that is our hope. It's our hope now. Right? We want to see more of uh, the things of heaven in this world and more of its peace and comfort and uh, love and all the things that come with, with God and God's where God is at. Um, so we have work to do, right? This is a part of this is if this is where God's if this is where the story is going, God is redeeming things, making things right. We're not just sitting around waiting for it, right? We we get involved in the action of that because we do have God's spirit in us now. Not as fully as we might someday, but we do have God's spirit. We do have the example of Jesus. And so our call is to do what we can to make uh, God's will happen on earth as it is in heaven as much as we can. It may be little things, but as I've said before, every act of love endures because that is what defines uh, God's kingdom most of all. So, All right, thanks everyone.